Today's message is entitled, The Politics of Pilgrims. Now, every day when the sun rises over Washington, D.C., the first rays fall on the eastern side of the city's tallest monument, which is the 555-foot Washington Monument. The first part of that monument to reflect the rising sun is the aluminum capstone where these words are inscribed atop the Washington Monument. It's a Latin phrase, Laus Deo, which means praise be to God. This compact prayer of praise, visible only to the eyes of heaven, is a recognition of our nation's unique acknowledgement of the place of God in its founding and its blessing. Perhaps the inspiration for that Latin inscription was taken from Psalm 33 and verse 12, which says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We know obviously America did not become the land of the free and the home of the brave by blind fate or by happy coincidence. Our founding fathers knew that in order for this nation to be great, then the people had to derive their morality and their freedom and their constitution from an unchanging standard which is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. George Washington, he said this, quote, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand of God which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Now if we are to be true to the Bible, We know that the same God who can bless a nation like America or Israel is also that same God who can rain down fire and brimstone on Sodom and confuse the tower builders at Babel. So blessing and cursing belong to the Lord our God and depends upon what we decide to do as a nation, to honor and revere and worship this God or to snub our nose at Him and defy His Word. And I think the reason why we see such... A national upheaval recently in our country is very evident. We have abandoned the God who has protected and guided and provided for us. Maybe it was President number 40, Ronald Reagan, who said it better than anybody. He said, quote, if we ever forget that we're one nation under God, then we'll be a nation gone under. You see, not only have we taken God out of the public square... Not only have we legislated sin and worshipped the almighty dollar, but now we have given credence to the cancel culture mob, which we now find tearing down our monuments, and which remind us who we are and what we've struggled and how far we have come as a nation. We've never been perfect, but we are striving still to overcome. And like you, as I've watched this nation in 2020, I've been concerned for America even now and before. This year we've witnessed so many unthinkable events and our country has changed so rapidly that many of you tell me I I don't even recognize my country anymore. Those of you who were privileged enough to grow up in the quote-unquote golden era of America where you went to a school and they started the day with prayer and the pledge, and the Bible was open, and where the church house was full, and the preacher was respected, and 
it just seemed like there was a national unity and a, an understanding of what it meant to be a nation under God. We've fallen far from that. But just this year, in the wake of COVID, we saw those stifling lockdowns in which churches and schools and, and businesses stayed closed. And when some churches in, in many states and, and businesses as well tried to reopen, they were threatened by dictatorial governors. Meanwhile, they allowed the casinos and the abortion clinics and the marijuana dispensaries to remain open because, let's face it, a lot of our world sees the church as non-essential. If they could have their way, uh, the church would not be meeting. And then we had George Floyd's killing, which ignited the American streets. We saw Black Lives Matter rioters turn cities like Minnesota uh, and Kenosha into war zones. So much for the shelter in place, right? So much for the quote-unquote mostly peaceful protests that our deceptive media uh, was trying to talk about. And then we've seen several city councils vote to defund their police departments. Madness. Even here in Asheville. And all of this, of course, is set against the backdrop of a heated election year where arguably the vision of the two candidates could not be more polar opposite than they are this time around. Well, I'm here today to remind you of what the Bible says of our place in this world. The Bible calls Christ followers pilgrims. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 and Hebrews eleven thirteen. A, a vagabond has no home, an ambassador is away from home, but a pilgrim is on his way home. <laughs> and that's you and me. This world is passing away. We're just passing through, praise God. We're citizens of America by first birth, but we are citizens of that city to come, heaven and the new Jerusalem, by second birth. That means that we must live as dual citizens, under our God and under this government. And in our message today, I want to talk to you about how the governments of God and men coexist and, yes, even clash at times, and what our responsibility is as Christian citizens. And so we're talking about the politics of pilgrims. And I want to discuss with you five ways a Christian can interact with government according to the Word of God. The first one is this. We are to pray for government. We're to pray for government according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now maybe the greatest thing we can do in this political process is to pray for the leaders of our nation. That God would raise up a generation of young men and young women who would not only live for Jesus, but also have the courage to stand on that, and yes, if God calls them to run for office. Because we need Christians in every area of life, friend. We need Christian doctors and Christian lawyers, Christian teachers, and yes, even Christians in the political realm as well. And if those folks who are in power aren't saved, the best thing that we can do for them is to pray that God would change their heart, that they would meet Jesus, that they would repent of their sin and see Him for who Jesus really is, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Now notice what Paul says here in our text. 
Verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, he said, and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And I circled one important word in that. It was in verse 2, all who are in high positions. That means even if you didn't vote for them. I didn't vote for Obama. I didn't agree with a lot of the policies that he put in action, but I prayed for him. I pray that God would open his eyes. I pray that God would give him wisdom. I pray that God would touch his heart. So we're to pray, yes, even for those politicians that we don't like and we didn't vote for and we didn't support because as you pray for them, it'll keep you from getting bitter and it'll give you peace. And then God can work in your heart. You see, we of all people recognize in our nation that our problems really aren't political, that our problems aren't cultural or racial or economic. Our problems really are spiritual. And so if we're going to fight this battle, we have to fight it on our knees. Now we understand that when Paul wrote these instructions to his protege Timothy in the first century, that there was a vile emperor named Nero who was sitting at the helm of the vast Roman Empire. And at this time, Christians were viciously persecuted. They were being tortured and killed for sport in the arenas. And Nero was known to take the Christians and put them on poles and light them on fire and to light his private gardens. And so it's shocking that Paul would say that in that context. Pray! We ought to pray that God would give those in power wisdom. That they would pass policies that would create better conditions favorable to the preaching of the gospel. I enjoy religious liberty, don't you? And so we ought to pray that God would give us a season where we can fulfill the Great Commission and we can preach His Word and we can meet peaceably. You see, the prayers of those first century Christians had to have made a difference because within a few decades after Paul wrote these words, the whole world was turned upside down and in a century or two, Christianity had conquered the Roman Empire. And so understand this, that the smallest man or woman on their knees before a sovereign God is mightier than the biggest Caesar sitting on the throne. Because you can get a hold of an almighty God and my word tells me that just as a channel of water is so that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He can move kings and raise up kingdoms. We can pray as William Tyndale did as he was being executed in 1536 for translating the Bible into English as they extinguished his life. He said, God opened the eyes of the king. There's a great story that was in the newspaper a few years ago about a dear lady named Emma Gray. She passed in 2009. And there was a story here that I found in the Washington Post, a local life, it said, Emma Gray, cleaner, Christian lady, served six presidents. Now, here was the story. She uh, was in the White House for 24 years. In fact, Emma Gray, this simple woman, was responsible for cleaning the Oval Office every day <laughs> for 24 years. She served six presidents. And what made the story more interesting was that Miss Gray, of course, was a prayer warrior. 
And she said in this article that she would stand and pray over the president's chair every time she was in there to clean. (laughs) She had her cleaning supplies in one hand and her hand on the desk with the other, praying that God would give the man blessing, wisdom, and safety as the leader of the free world. Friend, that's our calling as well. And I hope that you do pray for your president and your leaders because we're commanded to. We should pray for government. And then number two, I want you to see this according to the Word of God. We should participate in government. We should participate in government. Now, Jesus said this in His Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, He said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then he said, you're the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, and it gives light to all of us in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen, friend, the purpose of the church in the world is to be a source of illumination and an agent of preservation. According to this passage, salt was a preservative in the ancient world to slow the rate of decay in meat. They didn't have refrigeration like we do today in our modern world. And Jesus is making an analogy. He says, likewise, the presence of His people here on this earth is a source of preservation to keep a society from morally disintegrating. And as a lighthouse, the church shines forth the hope of the gospel and the truth of God's Word. And so, listen, friend, God has called us to be salt and light in every endeavor of life, in our families, in our workplaces, our schools, and yes, those places where our faith intersects with government. Now, America is unique because unlike so many millions of believers down through history who lived under monarchs or despots, we live in a republic where we have the opportunity to vote and elect leaders who we think will best represent what we believe. And so you must think of voting as another sphere of stewardship that God has given you. Just like we're stewards over our family and our finances and our time and our spiritual gift It's part of our stewardship to select leaders that we think will advance righteousness, truth, freedom, justice, and more opportunity for all. Now, I've heard the objections, and I know what folk think out there. Oh, Christians, they they shouldn't get involved in politics. You ever heard that before? Uh, They say things like, you preachers ought not to mix politics and religion. Well, I don't know where they got that idea. They certainly didn't get it from the Bible. Because <laughs> the Bible has a lot to say about those things. You may hear somebody say, well, politics is dirty and corrupt. And all we should focus on is just preaching the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission. So to some, they think we should just be like ostriches with our heads stuck in the sand. We stay in our lane and let the, let the government do their thing. Well, here's the problem with that thinking. Are you ready? That thinking compartmentalizes Christ between our private beliefs and our public behavior. You see, friend, I'm a Bible-believing Jesus follower, and what that means is that He is Lord over every aspect of my life. 
If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And so I just can't stop in my life and say, Jesus can't go any further. I won't give him my finances, or I won't give him authority over my life, or I won't let him speak into what I should do politically. You see, Jesus is not just real on Sunday morning, but He is Lord over my life. When I step into that voting box on November the 3rd and cast my ballot, I let Jesus inform my conscience. I vote Bible. And what I believe best reflects biblical values. So friend, listen to me. It makes no sense for us to say, for Christians to say, well, we'll just leave the law making up to the pagans. You see, if we don't vote biblical values, then don't be surprised when the godless sinners pass laws that promote evil and hinder the church's ability to fulfill the Great Commission. If you don't exercise your right to vote, then don't complain when others vote your rights away. So we got a part to play in this. Yes, we're to pray, but we're also to participate. Now, in just the past three elections, it's been proven that believers can have a big impact. If you're thinking about sitting this one out, listen to this. In 2008, about 30 million registered evangelicals did not bother to vote. And Obama's victory was considered a landslide because he won by 10 million votes that year. That was in 08. Move forward to 2012. About 25 million evangelicals did not vote. And the difference in the 2012 popular vote was less than 5 million. And the result, of course, was Obama was reelected. Now, in 2016, the whole world was shocked. <laughs> and boy, wasn't it a joy to wake up the next morning and see the faces of our media. They were in total disbelief. In 2016, evangelicals flocked to the polls in high numbers. In fact, evangelicals had one of the highest voter turnouts of all voting blocks, 61%. And 79% of evangelicals voted for President Trump. And as a result, listen, Trump edged out Clinton by just 80,000 votes in four key states, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Now, why do I mention that? The point is this. Evangelicals may not vote straight down party lines, but they do have the ability to heavily influence the outcome of an election which determines the direction of our nation. So this is incredibly important. And some I hear some say, well, it, it won't matter. I, I'm just one person, and, and one vote doesn't make that big of a difference. Well, you tell that to Al Gore, who in the year 2000 lost the election to George W. Bush because of the state of Florida where he won by just under 600 votes. You see, it matters. Edward Hale, a great writer, he said this, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. We're to pray. We're to participate. And then I want you to see this, and this is where it gets good. We're to preach. Pray for government. Participate in government. Preach to government. Now in Acts 24, that's where I'm going to take this from, we find Paul in chains. He's on his way to Rome. Paul is given the opportunity to plead his case before the officials in the Roman government. And in this chapter, he finds himself standing before a governor named Felix. And friend, you know the apostle Paul, don't you? He didn't back up, shut up, or give up. He preached to Felix 
a bold turn or burn message. Notice what the Bible says, Acts 24 and verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, here was his points in his messages. In his message, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. That's a three-point sermon that'll preach. He probably has some sub-points in there too. And notice this, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. If you keep reading, you find out that Paul preached to this man for two years while he was under his jurisdiction. And friend, that's our responsibility. We are to preach to government. You see, if you study the great lives of the Bible, you notice that God called men and women to stand toe-to-toe against political rulers and deliver the Word of God. It happened in the Old Testament. Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. Elijah before Ahab. He forecasted, he said, There's going to be no rain for three and a half years, so you better get ready. Daniel interpreted God's handwritten message uh, before a drunken Belshazzar in one of the greatest verses in the Old Testament, the Bible says that when Daniel told him what the message says, Mene, Menel, Tekel, Parson, waited, waited, and found wanting. The Bible says in the old King James that the king stood there and one knee smote against another. The fear of God was put in that old boy right there. Jesus stood before Pilate. He said, you're not taking my life from me because my kingdom is not of this world. And Paul told Felix, he said, Hey, you think you're high and mighty. Let me talk to you about righteousness and self-control and judgment. Because old Felix says, A payday someday. And you're going to have to stand before the Supreme Court of Heaven. And it's Judge Jesus. And there's no appeals. And no mistrials. And no jury. Because he's righteous. And he's ruler. And he's powerful. So you better get right. You see, friend we got a responsibility to preach to our government. Like Paul, we'll be civil, but hey friend, I won't be silent. I can't do it anymore. As long as they are killing babies in the name of pro-choice, I'll not be silent. As long as we have a government that tries to normalize sexual perversion, yes, even in our schools, I'm not going to shut up. When we have elected officials who are arguing that we need to defund our police department, how foolish can you get, I will not sit idly by. How can we say and how can we do nothing when our school systems in some areas are teaching critical race theory and brainwashing our children to hate this country? Friend, the days of being silent, meek, and mild have way passed us. It's time to preach to this government and let them know as the people of God, I've got a message for you. You see, the church, listen to me, the church is not the master of the state. The church is not the servant of the state. The church is the conscious of the state. And for too long, we've had too many silent pulpits where preachers were more concerned about filling pews 
and the paycheck and the popularity than actually standing on the Word of God and saying, here's what God says about it. I know you may not like it. It might disagree with your politics or what somebody else thinks, but this is what God says. We have to stand on it unapologetically because, friend, that's exactly why we're in the situation that we're in. You've got to understand why we're in this situation that we have to have the backbone to say to our leaders, look, what is morally wrong is not politically correct. And as God's people, the time has passed, we have to be biblically correct, not politically correct. And the church, listen, the church has to be the great bastion of light and truth to stand against the evils of socialism and leftism and racism and LBGTQ and all these things that want to destroy the fabric of our nation, redefine good and evil, take away the traditional family and threaten religious liberty. We have to preach to our government and let them know, hey, I'm standing with my Lord and my God and my Bible. You see, this world not getting any better, friend. And so it's time for the people of God to put on the whole armor. I'm talking about the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, uh, the gospel shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and stand and dig in and preach and pray and participate because the soul of a nation, and yes, our future is at stake. One of the greatest Christians of last century was a pastor named Martin Niemöller. You may have never heard of him. But he lived in Germany when Hitler and the Nazi party rose to power. And as Hitler began persecuting the church, he issued a law that forbade pastors from preaching about a Jewish Christ. You ever heard that? In 1937, Niemöller stood in his pulpit and preached a sermon entitled, God is my Fuhrer. (laughs) You think that ruffled some feathers? He also read the names of 83 fellow pastors and other Christians who had been arrested by Hitler and were now in concentration camps. Here's what happened. Days after that sermon, stormtroopers seized Martin in the middle of the night and threw him in prison. He spent seven years in bouncing from one concentration camp to another, when in 1945 the Allies marched in to where he was staying and they liberated the camp. But after his release, Martin Niemöller spoke about the danger of silent pulpits and cowardly Christians. And here's what he said. He said, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. You see, friend, evil triumphs when God's people say and do nothing. We can be the voice for the voiceless, the voice for the unborn, the voice of truth and justice. And yes, most importantly, the voice that crying in the wilderness that declares that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And the answer, and friend, do all that you can to bless and be a part of the gospel-preaching church on the earth. Be a part of the local church. 
Pray for your church. Volunteer. Get involved. Because, friend, this is the answer. The church is the lighthouse. The only hope. The only answer. And, friend, we've got the message. We've got the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God. And, friend, this is the refuge. This is the rescue station. This is where lives get turned around. This is where the truth thunders forth. This is where the difference is made. This is where God's people stem the tide and hold on to the horns of the altar and say, No more devil. You're not taking my family. You're not taking my school. You're not taking my country. And it's the last place. It's the last line of defense, friend, against a torrent of evil and wickedness that wants to sweep through our land. What do we got to do? We got to pray for government. We got to participate in government. We got to preach to government. And then listen to this we got to protest the government. You say, What? Protest? Is that in the Bible? I'll show you. Protest the government. There are times, yes, when it must be done. Acts chapter 5. I'm going to go back just a little bit in my Bible to Acts chapter 5, and I want you to read this with me. Starting in verse 27, look at what the Bible says. And when they had brought them, speaking of Peter and John, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in the name speaking of the name of Jesus, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring the blood of this man upon us. But notice what Peter said, verse 29, and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now this is early on in the book of Acts. Peter and John began turning Jerusalem upside down by preaching and by performing miracles in the name of Jesus. And the apostles here we see are labeled public enemy number one. They stand here before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And Peter and John are charged by them. Hey, you can't preach and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we get Peter's great answer. We must obey God rather than men. Friend, that verse right there is the basis for Christian civil disobedience. You say, what do you mean by that? When the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men come into conflict, and we're asked to conform to government over God, then we have a higher calling to obey God. Now we saw this happen this summer, didn't we? This summer during the COVID lockdowns, we witnessed some unfair treatment of churches, especially in the liberal dystopia of California. Have you noticed, by the way, all the people that are moving and leaving California? Listen to what happened. On July 13th, Governor Gavin Newsom ordered that all churches remain closed, citing rising cases of the virus. In response, John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, and the elders released a statement saying they would not comply with the shutdown order. When the government officials saw that MacArthur would not budge, listen to what they did. They fined his church $20,000 for violating that edict and threatened to fine him $1,000 a day and up to five days in prison for each time that they disobeyed the order and met and had church. MacArthur and the church brought a lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles and the state. They're still in litigation awaiting a ruling. But here's what John MacArthur said. Notice this. 
He said, God has established three institutions within human society. The family, the state, and the church. Each institution has a sphere of authority and jurisdictional limits must be respected. God has not granted civic rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. When any government official issues orders regulating worship, he steps outside his legitimate bounds of his God-ordered authority. And the biblical order is clear, he says, Christ, not Caesar, is Lord of the church. Amen? Who would have ever thought that that would have happened in America? But friend, if it can happen to John MacArthur and his church in California, friend, it can happen anywhere. And we need to be very careful about who we give power in this nation, especially when a party or a candidate shows great disdain for religious freedom and has basically said the church is not essential. Be very careful about who you put in power. And so we have to protest government at times. We're to pray, we're to participate, we're to preach. But then I want to finish with this, number five, and I'm done. We're to have perspective on government. Perspective. And I get this from Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. As we near this important election day, Paul reminds us of this great principle. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, he says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we're dual citizens. We're Americans by birth, but citizens of the New Jerusalem by second birth. And friend, let me tell you, if this election does not go the way that you want it to, then we should not lose heart because, friend, my hope is not in government. My hope is in God. I'm not looking for a politician to solve the problems of this country. Down here, I have to render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. But I want you to know that my real allegiance is to a nail-scarred, resurrected Jesus Christ. And friend, if you haven't heard, uh, He will never be impeached. Uh, the crown will never be taken away. Uh, friend, uh, some people want to know, hey, do you support the party of the donkey? Or do you support the party of the elephant? Uh, friend, I'm all for one party. It's the party of the Lamb of God who was crucified before the foundation of the earth who's risen and returning. And friend, He goes by many names. He's wonderful. He's mighty God. He's Counselor. He's Everlasting Father. He's Prince of Peace. You see, friend, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm not an Independent. I'm a monarchist because I serve a coming King of Kings. And friend, when He comes back, uh, he'll settle the score. He'll be able to do what no man is able to do. Uh, there'll be peace from one end of the globe to the other. Uh, he'll have a great welfare program. He's going to take care of all the needs of the people. And you talk about a foreign policy. <laughs> every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. So friend, if I wake up on November 4th, and the candidate that I support isn't in the White House, I'm not going to be upset. I'm not going to lose my hope. I'm still coming to church. I'm still serving Jesus. I'm still doing the King's work because, friend, uh, He's got something for me to do. And His kingdom has 
no end. So that's my encouragement to you today. The politics of pilgrims. I'm finishing with this. On July the 5th, 1863, Abraham Lincoln went to go visit one of his generals. The day before, they had just fought the Battle of Gettysburg. The Union had got a narrow victory. Lincoln went to meet a, a general by the name of Daniel Sickles. He was actually wounded in the battle. The general asked Lincoln, he said, Sir, were you worried about the battle? Were you worried about the outcome of Gettysburg? Here's what Lincoln told the general. He said, General Sickles, I had no fear of Gettysburg. And do you want to know why? He said, I went into my room one day and got down on my knees and prayed to Almighty God. And I told him that if this was his country and his war, I made a solemn vow with my maker that if he would stand by our boys at Gettysburg, I would stand by him. He said, and thus after wrestling with the Almighty in prayer, I don't know how it was. And it is not for me to explain, but somehow or another, a sweet comfort swept into my soul that God Almighty had taken the whole business there with His hands and that we were bound to win. And so, friend, from the advice of a president and the advice of the Word of God, just get along with Almighty and you'll realize... He's got it under control. And He gets the final say-so. Amen.